welcome to this episode of Bouncing Forward, a podcast designed to collect and share stories of resilience from beyond cancer. Today joining us is Daryl, who comes from West Virginia. Um, Daryl, welcome, and thank you for sharing your story with us. So um, why don't you begin by Thanks telling us me. a little bit about yourself? Uh, okay, well... Um... Personal history, I, I just turned 60 this year. Uh, been married um, coming up on 40 years. Our 40th anniversary is New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. Got two kids and six grandkids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm currently the um, primary caregiver for my mom who has metastatic breast cancer. Oh, okay. And uh, what's one of your favorite things to do? One of my favorite things, well, uh, I love playing music. Um, uh, right now, we're, we have a fitness business. So before uh, cancer, uh, I was a fitness instructor. I was in better shape than I was when I was a teenager, actually, wow. uh, at, uh, at 59. And um, so um, that I really love doing that and helping people get in shape and everything. So... Uh, I can't wait to get back to that. Hopefully next year I can start doing that again. Awesome. So what was uh, your diagnosis? Well, um, what happened was I, I had no clue that anything was going on. Uh, my wife and I had uh, spent a year uh, making an apartment for my mom in the back end of our house, we have a big old Victorian house. So we got at the back end, spent an entire year to make an apartment for her to live in after dad died of colon cancer. So we spent that year, got, got her moved in. And then we ended up having to move our business, our fitness business. So we started doing renovations in a new place. And I started feeling really tired all the time. Uh, I had a checkup coming up with my doctor, which I am very adamant on. I always go to my checkups been doing that since I was 40 years old. Um, and I just went in for a routine checkup and they did blood work and he's looking at it and he goes, well, your liver enzymes are elevated. So I've never seen that in you before. So it looks like gallbladder. We're going to do some imaging. So they sent me and did, uh, they did an ultrasound. They did a CT, did an MRI. And while they're looking at my gallbladder, thinking I had a gallstone or something like that, uh, they see this mass on my pancreas. Mm. And, uh, and uh, so <clears throat> and my mom just stuck her head out of her apartment, asked what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> so, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you heard that or not. Um, but anyway, um, so I went and um, they, they told me I had the mass on my pancreas. So I, uh, they scheduled a, uh, appointment with a gastroenterologist and uh, she did an end a, a endoscopic ultrasound and um, saw did a biopsy and while she was in there she had to put a stent in my um, in my bile duct because the tumor was sitting right on the bile duct and pinched it closed mm -hmm. that's what caused the liver enzymes to go up and I had jaundiced before I could get in to see her I had jaundiced and was really sick. I mean, I wasn't throwing up or anything. So they did that. We left the hospital believing I was going to be okay, that, that 
whatever was on my pancreas was okay. She kept just talking about a blockage in the bile duct. Both me and my wife left the hospital and that can't be all there is to it, you know? Mm. So a couple of weeks later, she calls me and asked me if I want to know what the pathology was. And I said, well, of course, you know. And she said it was an adenocarcinoma. It was cancer. And so she asked who I wanted for an oncologist and who I wanted for a surgeon. And I said, well, I want to stay in the medical system I'm in where my primary care doctor is and the local hospital where I'm at. I want my oncologist in Parkersburg, the surgeon. I don't care as long as he's really, really good. So there happened to be one in the, in the university up uh, a couple hours away from here. And he's the one who brought the uh, robotic Whipple procedure to our state. And um, he, uh, I asked him, you know, I started doing all kinds of research as soon as I was diagnosed. And most of the, and, and fortunately, when we found, because I was doing regular checkups and, and I just went in for a regular checkup when we found it, it was stage one. You never find pancreatic cancer at stage one. The surgeon was amazed. He said, I was in an elite group because most of the time it don't present itself, especially if the tumor is on like the body or the tail of the pancreas, it won't present itself until it's already metastasized everywhere. And so in February, I had the Whipple procedure, which is really invasive, but the robot helped. Uh, the recovery is way quicker when, it, when they do it robotically and and less chance of infection and all that kind of stuff. So the surgeon was really good. He does, I asked him the research I was doing, uh, was given um, survival rates and things like that. And um, even with the Whipple procedure, you only have like a 20% chance of living five years after the surgery. So I'm looking at that going, why do I wanna do this surgery? And, and I'm asking him, you know, how many of these do you do a year? And he kind of he kind of laughed and he said, well, um, my training consisted of 500 and I do 50 a year. <laughs> so that's the guy I wanted, you know, mm -hmm. he was really good. And he said that the, the survival rates that I was seeing online didn't apply to me because we caught it so early. How did you feel when you found out it was adenocarcinoma? Uh, well, it it was it was devastating. I mean, not I'm not one to feel sorry for myself. Uh, things that I can't control, I've never. I, I just really try not to be upset about things I can't control. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't my doing. So, of course, it's, it brings on a range of emotions, particularly when you, and I, I've known people with pancreatic cancer, and they were dead within weeks of mm -hmm. the diagnosis. Um, and that's the way most pancreatic cancer goes. So, um, so it was devastating. Um, I told my wife and my daughter, our daughter is one of our fitness instructors. And uh, so they were happened to be there when I took the phone call. Uh, we were actually still working on the renovation at our new fitness where we were moving into for our fitness business. And um, I went and told them and uh, I, it was, it was kind of depressing and a little bit, but 
it was probably a few weeks, a couple weeks after this is when we, when I had my first breakdown about it. Well, actually the only breakdown, me and my wife, we were done working down at, um, down at our fitness business and we walked two blocks up to a restaurant <laughs> and um, we went in to have dinner, ordered our food. It came, we're sitting there talking about all of this. And all of a sudden we both lost it right there in the booth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And uh, we're crying. People are looking at us. And I, tr- I looked at her and I said, we probably ought to go so we're not making other people uncomfortable. <laughs> and we turned around to look and looked out the door and a rainstorm had hit. <laughs> and we had walked. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're stuck. So we just cried it out in the booth. And the waitress left us alone until we were, uh, until we were done, you know, with the crying. And uh, then we finished our meal and, and went ahead and left. And that's the only real breakdown I've had. Uh, my wife cried a few times and I know that she's cried when I haven't seen, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's kind of depressing, but as time went on, um, I tend to, uh, find humor in everything. And, um, <clears throat> and I have a really good sense of humor and, and there's things that, uh, that kind of get funny to me over time even something that's really bad mm-hmm. and after i have my surgery i'm sitting here at my kitchen table i was off from work for like two months uh with the surgery recovery because they didn't want to risk a hernia or anything right. um so i'm sitting here at my kitchen table and my fitbit announces that i have reached my goal weight well i was losing a lot of weight you know because <laughs> my, the whole digestion is disrupted you know and i'm not i'm not digesting fats or fresh vegetables, things like that. So <laughs> and all of a sudden it says, congratulations on reaching your goal weight. So I'm sitting there looking at that and laughing. And I did a screenshot on my phone and I posted it on Facebook. And I said, my, I was, I put that picture of the congratulations on my, on my Facebook timeline. And I said, um, my Fitbit just congratulated me on reaching my goal weight. Apparently I was always one whipple away. <laughs> <laughs> and there were people, there were people who, uh, who didn't know how to take that. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm just sitting there hee-hawing about it. And, and there, uh, you know, there was people said, I don't know whether to laugh at that or not. I said, go ahead and laugh. That's why I put it out there. So I use humor a lot to, uh, to deal with situations that are, that are bad, you know, mm-hmm. and this was a bad one. I had no clue what the future was holding. Um, I had to keep, well, up until I had my surgery, I had to really keep working down at our fitness place. And like I said, I'm a caregiver for my mom. So I'm doing that, working down there, working my job, mm-hmm. uh, knowing I have cancer and, and not knowing what the future is going to be. My mom's going, you need to slow down. I said, I can't because I need to get this place has to be ready in case this cancer takes me out because I need it to make money for my wife after I'm gone, if, if I, if I leave. So, um, you know, people didn't understand why I was pushing myself so hard, but that was it. I, I, you know, I've already got things set up for her, you know, long before this ever happened. And she she's going to be okay financially and all that, but I wanted this place to be able to do what it was supposed to do, which was give her a living. If something happened, you know, drastic happened to me. So how are you now? Well, I've had the, the Whipple procedure, um, and it, um, like I say, it was two months off from work. 
Uh, it wasn't the nightmare I thought it would be. I still don't digest fats. And so I, I went from about uh, 185 down to 152. And um, I've since, and that happened after my, my last chemo. I was fortunate in that we caught this so early that I, it was the, the tumor was easily resectable without any chemo. Most of the time they have, to, they have to do chemo or radiation or something to shrink the tumor size to get it away from other vital structures before they can even resect it. But when mine, we caught it so early that they, they were able to go in and get it right away. And then uh, I think it was about six weeks after surgery that we started the chemo. Um, the, the chemo I was on is fairly new. It's called Fulfirinox. Um, it's harsh. I mean, it, they, and they'll only give it to people that they know are going to, is going to be able to stand it. You have to be really healthy. And like I say, I was, I was a fitness instructor. I was really healthy. I was strong. Um, and actually, even after when I first started chemo, I would be seven hours in the chair and then they would put a pump on me and I would have to wear the pump for 46 hours. I was going down to our gym and teaching fitness classes, wearing my pump. <laughs> and, um, and now it stopped after about, and I did 12 treatments after about the sixth one, it started getting hard. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just didn't have any breath. I didn't have any stamina. And I just told my wife, she's the one that owns the business. And I told her, I said, I'm going to have to stop. So we, we decided to, for me to, to stop doing the classes. And one of the weird things that happened was feeling guilty about it. Feeling guilty that I got sick. And the reason why was because I felt like I was letting my wife down with our business. Um, all the stuff that I used to do around the house because we both work day jobs and then we work as business in the evening. So I do a lot of the cooking because she had Raynaud's uh, in her hands and she can't handle like cold stuff. Getting Preparing cold food she can't do. It's just too painful for her. And uh, so I do that. I take care of the yard. And all, and all of a sudden, I just couldn't do this stuff. And I started feeling really guilty. And I, I mentioned that to her, you know, and she and everybody says, you know, well, don't feel guilty. What's well, not something I could really help. That was just there. I felt guilty. felt like I was letting everybody around me down. And um, then after I found out I was going to be OK, a new kind of guilt came in. It was uh, it was like survivor's guilt. And it was, and that happened, that started happening after I was going to chemo because I would see these people and, and most of the, most of the um, chemo chairs were in a separate room. Uh, you know, they just had one chair per room at the infusion center, but there was one, there was one room that had two chairs in it, a little curtain that you could draw. Well, I ended up in there four, four treatments in a row. I called it the hole. Nobody liked it. There were no windows, <laughs> mm. you know, you're there with other people. But I did get to talk to several people, and 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 the the people were just struggling, and and I'm sitting there, and I'm not struggling with any of this, and so I began to feel guilty about you know why am I surviving this? Why is my outcome like this when there's nothing about me mm -hmm. that deserves any any different outcome than anybody else would have? I mean, I'm not, a, you know, I'm a good person, but I'm just, there's nothing special about me. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just a person. Yeah. And yet I see all these other people struggling and, and, and dying. Um, a good friend of ours actually used to be in a band that we played in. Um, his wife just died of HLH. They, they've got kids at home. Mm-hmm. My kids are grown. I've got grandkids. And, and she died of a really rare disease. And, you know, and it's like, why? Yeah. You know, why, why, did, why did she have to die and me live? And when she has kids to still raise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's one thing we learn, I think, is the disease doesn't, uh, doesn't discriminate. It just comes. Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't. And, and, yeah. and it also shows you that life is not fair. And uh, I mean, that's something my dad taught me from when I was little. If I complained about something not being fair, he said, life isn't fair. You have to take what's handed to you and make something of it. Can you um, name one thing that you've lost as a result of this disease? One thing that I've lost. Um, I struggle with that one because my outcome has been so good. Mm-hmm. I've thought about that one ever since you sent me the questions mm-hmm. and it, it, um, the only thing that I can really think of now, I don't know. I've got neuropathy from the chemo, so I don't know if I can still play guitar or not. I haven't tried since I finished the chemo. So I don't know if I've lost that or not. I do know that I have lost strength and stamina from the chemo. Um, as soon as the surgeon released me, I could still do setups and I was exercising until the chemo started taking its toll. Chemo takes a lot of things. It, it, it almost like it takes more from me than the cancer, or, or at least in my case, it did. Yeah. It just felt like the cure was worse than the disease. I mean, I, and I still though, I, I fared very well against this harsh new chemo that they were putting into me. Uh, I didn't lose my hair. Mm-hmm. I never did puke, I had nausea occasionally uh the anti-nausea medications uh took care of that um this but the the seventh treatment was the worst for not i was nauseated the entire week after that one for whatever reason i don't know what was different about that one Mm -hmm. but i you know i told the oncologist and and they um they reduced the amount of the chemical that was causing the nausea a little bit. And they, they were supposed to also help with the uh, neuropathy. Now, I had a really weird side effect they had never seen before. Which was? Uh, and it happened every time. It happened every time. Um, I was there at the uh, infusion center for seven hours on the day, first day of treatment. And the, the bag, the oxaliplatin that they were putting into me, after, they, after that bag was done, it was a two-hour drip. And after two hours, they would put on uh, another one called Camptosar. And suddenly I would start slurring like I was drunk. <laughs> I mean, my speech would slur. I would spit everywhere. <laughs> and uh, I, I called the doctor in or the, one of the nurses. I said, am I slurring? And she goes, I don't know how you talk normally. This is my first treatment. So it would last like two or three hours after I got home. And then it would then it would slowly go away. 
So that was uh, one of the rare side effects. And they've only, they have, after, after me, they saw it in another patient that was coming in. It was kind of funny because I, on my last, uh, on my last treatment, I was going to give a little speech to the nurses because they, they work hard in those infusion centers Mm -hmm. and there were days, and this is right in the middle of the COVID stuff going on. Even, even when they were really busy, they would take time to answer my questions or listen to some story. I was telling them, you know, it was funny. And so I was going to say a speech, give a speech to them and thank them for everything they did for me. And then I was thinking, well, I better put it in a card because they're not going to be able to understand the thing I'm saying <laughs> at the end of this treatment. <laughs> you know? So I handed them a card whenever I rang the bell, you know, uh, after the last uh, treatment. Yes. Can you name one gift that you've received from this One disease? gift? Yeah. Um, it makes you appreciate the time that you spend with your family and friends. Um, it makes you pick your battles carefully. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, it gives you a new, new perspective on life really and things that used to seem important are not anymore mm-hmm. things things that didn't seem important are and uh so i would say that that's it right there would be uh making sure that you're you're making memories and it gave me a platform too um on Facebook, I ended up with a ton of people following me mm-hmm. um, because it's one of the things that, that I didn't even know, even with my mom and dad having cancer, they lived 14 hours away at the time. And so when mom got cancer back in 2008, I wasn't real involved in that. Dad was really healthy. Um, he was taking care of her and my mom's sister was there. I had a brother that lived in the next town down there where they lived. And uh, so I wasn't really involved in her care and treatment of that. So like most people, I thought, you know, chemo in particular just uh, would make you puke and lose your hair. And that's all I knew about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about like each chemical they put into you can have about 12 separate side effects. And um, I didn't know that. And so I figured if I, I didn't know that, probably most people didn't know that. So I started posting everything that was happening to me. And every time I had a treatment, I would, and through the surgery, I just started posting how I was feeling about it emotionally, how, you know, what was happening physically to me. And, and I was getting people thanking me because they had family members who wouldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they had no clue what their family members were going through. And so I had a lot of people thanking me for, for putting that kind of stuff up. That's great. So if you had one piece of advice, actually, to someone who's going through something similar, what would that be? Well, research. Do a bunch of research on whatever type of cancer you have. Um, on what type of chemo, ask the doctors, get second and third opinions. 
um, make memories with your loved ones. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, we met in a, in a cancer support group on, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And I guess you've probably seen the, dis the utter despair and agony and hopelessness that's there. I have on a lot of these people and anger. Yes. A lot of anger, a lot of, a lot of fright. Um, I just did not want to spend my last days that way. If this mm -hmm. was indeed going to be the end. And it's one of the reasons I like using humor about it. I wanted to make sure that the last, the last thing that the people are going to remember about me is me being happy. Mm. as happy as I can be in the circumstances and not grouching at people and not, not getting onto them because I'm, I'm suffering not to make them suffer with me. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's, it's like, it's like uh, we watched a movie the other day and this movie is coming on. I've seen this movie 50 times probably. And I'm going, I don't remember this part of the movie, the very beginning of it, I don't remember this being the beginning of this movie. And that's the way people are with life, too. Nobody remembers your beginning, but they sure do remember your end. So what would you say was the main skill or quality or value that helped you through this whole journey so far? Uh, well, there's a couple things. I'm, I'm a spiritual person, so... Uh, Prayer mm -hmm. is one. Um, I didn't blame God for it. Um, I recognize his sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And like I say, there's nothing about me that deserves any better outcome. It's just his grace uh, that gave me the outcome that I have. Um, Another one is being in really good physical shape when it started. Uh, the stronger you are when this thing starts, the stronger you're going to be when it's over. You know, I'm still not done with this journey. Um, right now, the last scan showed I was cancer-free, but I'm getting ready to start radiation. Mm -hmm. um, the surgeon's confident he got it all, <clears throat> but I'm going to go ahead and go. And most people that I've talked to that's done radiation say they, they wish they would have just done the chemo and not the radiation. <clears throat> but I'm going to see it through to the end. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I did the surgery for me. And the rest of the treatment, I think I'm doing for my loved ones. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, just to give them. Uh, and I got a great family. I mean, they're all supportive. And um um, yeah, it's, it's quite a journey. It's not fun. Mm. Mine was not the nightmare I anticipated it being after doing all the research. Um, you know, it's, it's still, it still wasn't at all fun, but uh, necessary if I was going to stay around. Uh, one of the things I would like to say is one of the most important reasons to do your own research on the type of cancer you have and, and the chemo and stuff is so you can understand what the doctors are saying. This, the terminology for this stuff is so foreign 
that you can sit there and, and listen to them and walk away not knowing a thing they said. When I went to the doctor, I already knew two or three different chemos that they could put me on. Um, you know, I mean, I knew almost everything. And when they talked to me, I could talk to them intelligently about it. And I knew what questions to ask them because of all the research I did. And I, that's probably the most valuable thing that I did to prepare for this. And I, that, that went a long way into, into the confidence and, and how I felt about things. It, it helped me emotionally. And I think to me, having the knowledge just helps everything. And, I, and yet I run into people who are afraid to do research. They're afraid to know anything about what's going on with them. And I, I, maybe it's just a different personality type. I don't know. But I, I liked being able to understand the doctors, knowing what they were saying to me. And I liked not being caught off guard. Well, that's good advice. And um, I want to thank you again for sharing all of that with us. You're welcome. And, um, and I want to also wish you well for the rest of the treatments. Well, thank you. If, you. if you want to talk to me again after the radiation to find out how that went, I, you know, I'd be willing to. to come on again sometime. With pleasure. So, Thank you so much, Daryl. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you'll all join me in wishing Daryl well and sending him good thoughts. Last I heard from him on Facebook, he was courageously plowing through his radiation treatments. One thing I found delightful in this conversation was Daryl's unassuming sense of humor. Um, this was in, in the recording, but he joked with me that at one point his Billy Rubin levels were so high that he'd become jaundiced, and it was so severe that the nurses and doctors were calling him Dr. Mustard. So anyway, the ability to continue to exercise humor is such a big part of starting and ending the journey well, don't you think? But what does it take to be able to find cancer funny? I mean, when you're in the thick of things or when your diagnosis just arrives, there's really nothing funny there. It's actually when you're able to find things funny again that you know that you've gone out of survival mode. The problem is that so many of us get stuck in that survivor mode, even after doctors declare us to be with no evidence of disease. It's like it's impossible to relax into life again. I think Daryl points to something really powerful here, which is the element of choice. You know, for Daryl, he decided how he wanted to live his life after his diagnosis, regardless of what the medical outcome would be meaning he decided that he, what he wanted to embody, what he wanted to do for his family, what he wanted to fill his days with. Um, things that seemed important to him were not anymore, and things that seemed unimportant became more important. Uh, so, as I often say, we don't necessarily have control of what the disease is doing to us, but we do have control of how we approach it, feel it, and live it. That's where the real power is. Anyway, I leave you with these thoughts. Please feel free to send your questions and comments um, as usual on the Facebook page at uh, Coaching Solar or on the website at Solar Coaching, or you can also email us at bouncingforward at 
solarcoaching.ca. Thank you for listening.